every single action that you take is taken because you think it's the best action at the time to achieve what you want. Now, here's the catch to that, though, is that when you take those actions, to achieve what you want actually is a really important asterisk on that sentence because sometimes we act with what in the psychology literature would be called an avoidance behavior and sometimes we'll act with an approach behavior and the decisions that we make of actions are driven by are we more happy to accept like this is uncomfortable and i fear it but i'm still going to do x because it moves me towards what i love or this is uncomfortable and I'm going to do why, which might move me towards what I love, but it'll also reduce my discomfort. And so I'm avoiding discomfort more than I am moving towards what I really want. Patty Steinford is the senior performance coach for the Boston Red Sox, host of the Toughness Podcast and advisor at U.S. Army Human Performance. In this episode, we discuss focus, psychological flexibility, decision-making, and how to direct your attention during crucible moments. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter. Just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with the desire to improve. But now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Patty, it's great to have you on today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Eric. Great to be here. So you currently serve as a senior performance coach for the Boston Red Sox. That's a pretty cool job, I would say. Um, But what I find very interesting is that you were a professional athlete before you got into this mental performance space. So how did being a professional football player impact your view on like the mental preparation side of the game? Yeah, I I kind of stumbled into it. I was good as a junior, junior, like in high school, good enough to be in some representative squads. And then we had a psychologist come to a camp one time. He gave us a couple of exercises. I was like, all right, I'll do them. And then I went out and played my brains out that weekend. And I was like, oh, there's something to that. I'm going to put it into my routine and keep it. Mm-hmm. And I then went on to a professional career that was probably didn't live up to what it should have been. I, I did play professionally for nine years, but I was a first round draft pick. Had a lot of injuries changed teams a few times. And there was a, a bunch of challenges that I didn't expect when I was a teenager dreaming of that career. I thought it was all going to mm-hmm. be roses and chocolate. And uh, it definitely wasn't. And so not only did my experience as a teenager and having success with performance psychology help. I also saw the need for a focus on well-being and managing some of the other stuff that is out of your control in that domain. And, and so that really kind of planted a seed. I didn't go on to do it immediately. I went and worked as a physical therapist for four years before I then went to being a coach. And as a coach, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that psychology stuff was important. So that's when I dove back into the topic and became specialized, I guess. So you went through the full education process to be a physio. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, your, your path is pretty interesting. Like you did that and then you went into the private sector, it looks like. Yeah, I did that. And, and I went into the private sector partly because I got to, the, um, got to the point within my physio career, physiotherapy career was where I was like, kind of like, is this it? I think it, 
I say to some people that it kind of suffered from being, it was my first real job after being a professional athlete. So anything sucks compared to that as a lifestyle. And, and in terms of how much, how much you put into it, how passionate you are about it, I was just cruising along. I'd also had three shoulder reconstructions during my playing career. So the physical nature of being a physical therapist just didn't, I couldn't do more than three days oh, a month. So at that point, I was like, oh, this isn't really it. I started asking around for coaching or, you know, sort of consulting opportunities. And there was one that was a pretty cool one that took me to New Zealand to coach their national and international teams on leadership and culture development, which I'd experienced a little bit as a player on the other side of a similar program. And so I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. It's kind of like coaching. It's kind of something that's definitely not physio. So let's go and get into that. Wow. So you, uh, you transitioned, you, you know, after your time with, was it Adelaide, you went to, I mean, that's a pretty amazing club, by the way, you end up in the U S at UPenn and that's where you and I kind of got peripherally connected to our, our buddy, uh, Chad Dennis. And you started working with Texas tech university with Cliff Kingsbury there. Explain what you were doing. Like, like what, what were you actually doing with these athletes at the time? So at that time I had, um, I had spent a, a three year period in Adelaide as the effectively the head of player development, um, off field and, and on field as well, from a leadership point of view, progressing to being the manager of high performance in my third year. And then wow. at that point though, we had been through a rough couple of years because just before I arrived at the team, they'd been caught cheating the salary cap and were fined uh, the first two draft picks each year for the next two years. So all of a sudden we've got this, like you can imagine what that would do to an NFL team, uh, an NBA team. You're effectively like robbed of good talent for two years. And so my job became instead of, hey, make sure these first-round draft picks don't flame out, it was, hey, can you turn a third-round pick into a first-round pick, please? Like find a way to do that. And so given a lot of sports science and analytics had already you know, the avenues had been exhausted. The, the unexplored or really untapped area was psychology. And so I had spent a, bit, a fair bit of my own private time in the off season. I would pay for my own way to fly to America and meet geniuses like you and other people around the industry and learn as much as I could about how things worked in college sports, in pro sports. And so by the time I was there studying at UPenn, I had done a lot of kind of my own tinkering in, in, a, in a backyard laboratory of Australian football of taking specifically some of the uh, research that had been done with the U.S. Army and their resilience, master resilience training programs, taking elements of that program and applying it to the footballers I was working with in Australia. And we had gotten some really cool results. Like we, we had found because I used validated measures and had a fairly controlled environment where I could effectively select and, and deselect people from being in the squads. We had a controlled experiment with a control group that was similar to the intervention group where we saw changes in their levels of grit and optimism as a measure, but also in their consistency and in their max performance over the course of the entire season. So wow. So I took that and went for the few contacts that I had in America. I was like, hey, I got this thing. I've also done some cultural and leadership work in New Zealand. 
So I think I can be helpful, but I'm not going to be too presumptuous. I just want to help out somewhere. And um, luckily for me, Cliff was open to it. And they had a couple of guys come through there at the time that I was working who were who have gone on to amazing things. And yeah. I was lucky to work with them. And at the same time, the Philadelphia Eagles had Chip Kelly in charge, who was incredibly open-minded. And they also, because my school was in that city, it kind of helped. And I said to them, hey, I, I'm not presuming this will work with everyone, but let me do it with your rookie class. So they brought me in to work with their rookies. So I was going to do it free of charge. And then Chip saw the first day of the program. And within by the end of that day, they'd signed me for the whole of training camp and, and all of the veterans. So wow. it kind of it kind of blew up quicker than I expected it to, but that sometimes happens when you're onto something that that is needed and is effective. Wow. So what does it mean to you? I know I've I've read there's a great article everybody should read from Sports Illustrated about you, which I thought was fantastic. It was a good piece of journalism. But what does it mean to you to have psychological flexibility? Well, I think I, I didn't know that I was living it at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of times along that weird pathway that I've spoken to you about uh, just now, but the ability to pivot in the moment and put your attention on what matters when it matters, particularly with respect to where you want to go, like what you want to, what you want more of in your life, what you want more of in a game. Like, do you want to score more points or do you want to be right with the referee? It's up to you. You can you can focus on whichever one, but. If your attention is on the referee, you're probably not going to be putting all your energy and all of your talents to work on scoring more points. And so in that context, I had kind of accidentally lived it or just maybe maybe it was developed over time probably because I wasn't very flexible as an athlete. I got very stuck in my ways. And so I learned the hard way that didn't work all the time. But really there's a bunch of research that shows that it is – key not only to dealing with some, it was originally developed as a concept, dealing with phobias, panic disorders, people who were physiologically stricken based on external stimuli that they, you know, it it was crippling to them just living a normal life. Mm. But their ability to be flexible with where they placed their attention and when they placed it um, and on what it was, was key to living with some of those conditions to dealing with anxiety, but it also applies just as well to a performance context to people who are able to stay present in situations of stress and pressure tend to get better results. They tend to have their talent and their hard work come out without their thoughts or their feelings getting in the way. And that's really what most of my work ends up being with an elite level performer or a coach or anyone else uh, in and around areas of stress and pressure is helping them stay present. I could imagine a picture. Okay, COVID's been weird because like the stadiums are like basically empty. Still, there's pressure. But like, let's say coming this summer and fall, you know, Fenway Park is packed out and you got a star pitcher and it's they're playing the Yankees. You know, a lot of pressure, right? ESPN will have it on. You know how it is. It's it's a huge rivalry. Um, how do you help somebody shift their attention to what they want to do when there's so many distractions, noise, their fatigue, what the coach is saying, the people yelling and screaming at them? Like how do how do you how do you help somebody shift their attention? Then how do you prepare them in advance for these crazy scenarios? 
Yeah, well, I think that's a really, really important nuance to the question you just asked is it's this two-part process. One is in the moment there are things that we can do to shift our attention or to at least get some some control on it, but you're never going to fully control it. So there is an in-the-moment component, but a lot of the work is done in advance. Uh, I've got a colleague, ironically, who was at the New York Yankees, um, Lauren Johnson, who says if you want to, if you want to not think in the moment, then you've got to think a lot before the moment. And it's about making sure that you've got your your ducks in a row or things squared away where you're very clear, like when this situation happens that can sometimes derail me, then I, I have a if-then plan or a then, when-then plan. So it's almost like a robot computer programming, like when I get behind in the count, then I'm going to do X. Or if this happens, then I'll do Y. Um, so that you know when to turn to, where to turn to, because once you're in the moment, you don't want to be trying to solve new problems all at once because there's enough problems that get thrown up by the game as it is. So for things that you know work, it's usually about investigating when I'm good, what do I do? Well, let's try and make that the default where we start from and where we get back to if things start to get off track. And a lot of the work in the moment is more about being able to accept uncomfortable feelings, like recognize that. Sometimes a lot of this stuff that we might want to get rid of is part of the journey. I, 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 the best example I've got of this is a, a multiple Super Bowl winner who, uh, who in one of the exercises we did at an NFL team, when we started talking about how they deal, well, you know, what happens when things start to go wrong, you, within two or three sentences, he was talking about what people say about him on Twitter. This is what he thinks about in the game, on the field, after he's let a score happen. And and it was, you know, the conversation went back and forth for a second and then it was like, well, I've got a trick that will help you get rid of that. Like it happens, it happens this quick. Are you interested? And then, of course, he leans in. He's like, of course. <laughs> well, cool. We can walk like 100 yards that way, turn right, go into coach's office, and you can just quit. And then you'll never have to worry about Twitter again, right? It's gone. Or <laughs> you can accept that being trolled on Twitter is part of – the package of being an NFL star. Now, we wish it was different. It would be nice if people were pleasant about things, but that's not reality. But you can easily make it go away if you want to let go of the other things. If you don't want to let go of the other things, then you have to accept Twitter. And it becomes a matter of acceptance of, that's a silly off-field example, but it applies just as much on the field. I don't like the way my body feels right now. I don't like the referee, the umpire squeezing the strike zone, whatever it might be, is accepting the things that you wish were different and being able to commit to in the face of all of these things, in the context of all that discomfort, here's what's in my control and here's what I know I can do that gives me the best chance of success. Long answer. Wow. That's fantastic. Um, how can somebody that's not a pro athlete apply this to their life? Like I'm a parent, I have three sons, uh, you know, life gets, I'm, I'm a founder, I'm working from home and, you know, things get stressful and I like, you know, you lose your cool, right. Or whatever, like that executive in the workplace, like how can you apply this to those situations? Yeah. Well, I think the, it's a great, it's a great opportunity for us to learn from great, from really good performers. And oftentimes it's as simple as changing the questions that I would ask those guys would be the same that I would ask you or anyone who's listening of like, 
what's the context that's most important to you right now from a performance point of view? So that could be as a parent, Eric, or it could be as the host of this show right now, or it could be as, a, you know, you're pitching for someone to become a late-round investor in the startup. Cool. Whichever one it is, that's cool. You, you know that area better than I do. And so when you're in that area, when you're good, what are you paying attention to and what are you doing? Because I like to say to the athletes regularly, like the game doesn't give a shit how you feel. So we're not going to talk about what you feel. We're not going to talk about the positive thoughts you want to have. No one cares about that. The, the press doesn't care. The opponent definitely doesn't care. The game doesn't care how you feel. What it cares is what are you paying attention to and what do you do? And so if we translate that to being a good parent, in those moments when you are present with your kids and you don't overreact and you are, you know, you've got things squared away as best you can with three kids, then what do you, what do you pay attention to? And what are your key actions that are totally in your control and you can't blame anyone else if you don't do them? Likewise, as a podcast host, I have a little bit of knowledge of that. I haven't been on it as long as you, but your ability to pay attention to X, Y, and Z means that you're more responsive and you can, the conversation flows better. And these are the things you do visually to help the person stay engaged, whatever it might be. And when you're presenting, you know, public speaking, the number one fear of humans in the world. And this is above and beyond dying, bleeding, going to hospital, having a heart attack. Like literally the number one fear is public speaking. So if you happen to be presenting in a public atmosphere, you're probably going to have some sort of feeling of anxiety or fear if you're a normal human. And so in the face of that, the, the question is when you're good, when you do present and talk okay, not perfect, but when you're good, what do you pay attention to and what do you do? So you're not paying attention to, oh, that guy in the front row is looking at his phone. Does that mean I'm shit? Does that mean this meeting's over? Oh, my God, and your mind runs elsewhere. I'm paying attention to the person who is looking at me and I'm trying to engage that person. And what do I do? I have three or four key points I want to make each slide and I have questions or I move or I, you know, whatever it is that you do when you present. So it's about really honing in on when you're good, what do you do? And then trying to make sure that that's the key, the things you don't negotiate on, even when you get nervous and even when you don't feel comfortable. Love that. I can already think right now about with my kids, <laughs> when I'm my best, I'm really listening to them. And like, I pick out features of their faces that I want to like savor. I know it sounds weird, but like, and then it's like, I'm really connecting. Cause like you, you yeah. That's, that's a great piece right there. I wrote it down in my notes. So I'm going to be using that for the rest of my life. <laughs> I'm well, serious. Like, here's the other thing that's interesting is that you say you're going to use that for the rest of your life. You've already been using it, right? Yeah. You're aware of it, right? Not, not mm -hmm. to the extent of how explicit we got there, but mm -hmm. most of the time when I'm working, whether it's with someone who's a businessman, I work with a venture capital firm, runs a couple billion dollars under assets, like they're legit. You want to introduce me? Yeah, I'll help you. Yeah. I don't know if I work in tech, but we'll, we'll yeah, see if we can make that happen. Yeah. The, um, but, but working with them, whether it's working with them, who are very successful operators, obviously, working with elite performers in sport, working with the military, when I ask those questions, it's not like they're discovering things they didn't know, right? You already know that that works. You just don't pay enough attention to it when it really matters. And that's really what this is about. I'll often say when I start working with someone, I'm going to teach you a little bit, but you're going to earn, sorry, you're going to learn a shitload. 
and probably earn a shitload as well by the end. Of it. <laughs> but, but this is less about me dropping knowledge bombs and more about me asking questions that put your attention on the things that actually matter, that you know matter, but you get distracted by other things. I love it. That's a great mental model um, for, for anybody to apply. You talk about something called the four uns. What are those? You're, you're testing me here because I've stopped using that in my uh, oh. after. Well, I, I've, I've added to it. When after, so after one of my former colleagues read that article. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's un- uncertainty, unpredictability, the unknown, and being uncomfortable are the four mm-hmm. that, I, that I would regularly refer to. And the fifth one that this person mentioned, which I thought was really, really cool, um, and it ruined my four uns. I, I can say five uns, but I, I already have something else that uses five in a model, so I've got to work that out. But anyway, the fifth un is being uncommon, which because you, you said, you know, yep, everyone deals with the unknown. Everyone deals with being uncomfortable. Everyone deals with not being able to predict what will happen in a certain situation. But what we deal with, particularly with the performers at the top end, is being uncommon. And I shared this with a friend of mine who I went to school with, whose son happens to be a, a phenomenal actor um, and he's, he's blowing up in, he's signed by Disney and he's blowing up on a couple of series right now. And I, and I said, you know, and he also liked the four runs as a model. I said, you got to add this one, particularly for your kid, because some of the stuff he has to deal with is about, like it's uncomfortable to, to say no to your friends when they want to go do this party, but you can't because you've got to go, to a seven-day isolation before you shoot a four-month project or you got to leave your city, your home in New York City and go to LA for three months and not see your friends at all mm-hmm. or you've got to study for that exam and this is not about his kid anymore but it could be anyone who's trying to do something that maybe hasn't been done in their family before, be the first person to graduate from college, be the first person to get a scholarship to college, be the first person to start their own business. There, there's so many things that people try to do where it's an unfamiliar situation, there's definitely uncomfortable times. It's unpredictable in its own ways, but in a way, just by choosing to be uncommon, all of those things come hand in hand with that choice. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the, the mother of them all there. Cause you're willing to accept those things because of a choice that you've made. Right. I love it. Um, man. This is some great stuff, Patty. Now I see like why, why you've moved up in the world so quickly. I wish I could be one of your athletes. Uh, well, um, I, I, I got to thank you for being one of the first people I spoke to when I came over here, man. I, <laughs> I would say that this is probably a more, a more, uh, there's more value in this conversation than the first one we ever had way, way, way back in the day at FSU. <laughs> My goodness. A lot has happened since Florida state, man. You know, like, let me ask you, this is just off the cuff, but I was telling my wife today that I rethink decisions I made 10 years ago. Like, like, could I have done this differently? What would the outcome have been? I've really tried to become a better deci- evaluating my decisions, like not on the outcome, but like the process. Do you do that very much? Do you think about these things or help athletes explore the decision-making processes? Yeah, de- decision-making is a, is a key part of what we do. It's it's less about rumination though. Like that's a yeah. it's a common thing for all 
adult humans to do. Kids don't do it as much, but mm-hmm. by the time you've lived some years, you've got more years to look back on and probably more decisions to either regret or celebrate. And it's something that's co- that's a common thing for humans to do. I do it myself, but oftentimes it can lead down a pathway of regret or of, oh, I wish I had done something different. Or in some instances, it can lead to future paralysis because we get presented with a, an opportunity that we then think five times through because of, oh, I've seen this opportunity four times and I did it this way twice and that way twice and which one's best instead of going with like, is what my best decision is right now. And usually it's, it, it, I'm curious to hear what your current working model is for those like, for reviewing your decision-making is because I'm constantly evolving on that front and um, I, I love incorporating or hearing other people's models. What do you, how do you work through that these days? It's a new world for me right now. And in, in this space of being a, uh, a CEO, right? It's, it's so unpredictable. All the decisions I'm making are like an uncharted territory. But what I do go back and think about is the process that I had, like when I started being started doing sports science and high performance back in 2011, like that, what didn't exist in the U S like I didn't have a coach. I didn't have somebody to tell me how to do these things. And some of my decisions were really good. And some of them were like, eh, you know, so I try to go back and I think about what were the circumstances um, what were the things I was weighing out in my mind at the time? Um, you know, was it, I know I've been reading a lot from Annie Duke, the book, how to decide fantastic. Right. And I read a lot and I listened a lot from Shane Parrish and, you know, the knowledge project and just some of their books on like, you know, like creating these models of like, don't, I shouldn't evaluate uh, my decision by the outcome, but by rather the process that we took, you know, and was, did I have a positive outcome because it was luck or did I have a positive outcome because it was truly a good process? And these, you know, it's a bet. It's a bet at the end of the day. And I've made some bets so far that have paid off. And, that, and that's really kind of reframed me. It's like poker. Like you're going to, you can't call the perfect pitch. Right. When the perfect pitch, when the guy strikes out, like it was the perfect pitch. Mm-hmm. But what if he had adjusted and seen something? What if blah, 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 blah. So I've started to realize I got to give myself some grace. Yeah. And it's- like, think through it. Think about the situation. I try to step back and actually like take a breath and like review all the things that could happen. Talk to some people I trust and then make a decision, go with it. There you go. And that's like one of the biggest um, weights off people's shoulders, particularly when they're reviewing past decisions that either they could even work. They could have worked the way that they wanted them to at the time, but they look back and they regret not taking a different path, which could have worked better. Who knows? Um, but the, 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 one of the best ways to look at it is every single action that you take is taken because you think it's the best action at the time to achieve what you want. Now, here's the catch to that, though, is that when you take those actions, to achieve what you want actually is a really important asterisk on that sentence because sometimes we act with what in the psychology literature will be called an avoidance behavior and sometimes we'll act with an approach behavior. And the decisions that we make of actions are driven by are we more happy to accept like this is uncomfortable and I fear it, but I'm still going to do X because it moves me towards what I love or this is uncomfortable and I'm going to do Y, which might move me towards what I love, but it'll also reduce my discomfort. 
And so I'm avoiding discomfort more than I am moving towards what I really want. And so this, this can be applied as a micro analysis of like, did you or did you not swing at that pitch because you were scared or because you wanted to hit it? Or it can be macro. Did you move into that field because you were scared of what would happen if you were at state as a physio and your shoulders didn't work 10 years down the line? Maybe. Or did you move into that field because you loved psychology and working with humans? Probably more of the second one. Mm. But there was a little bit of both. And and that is a decision that I review. Well, probably not that regularly now, but as I was doing it, it was something that I kept thinking about. And so that's one really important element of decision-making. And then the strategic level version of that, it's funny you mentioned poker because game theory is something that I'll that will regularly come up in conversations with um, pitchers, quarterbacks, coaches, people who have to execute strategy under pressure, is what gives you the best chance? You mentioned it there that it's less about certainty and it's more about probabilities. And, and eventually it becomes a matter of like, if I do want to win, then this gives me the best chance. This pitch gives me the, the, uh, a better chance of not looking stupid but am I here to not look stupid or am I here to win? And so that's where the, the nuances of that uh, happen. And often you know, it'll end up coming back to whatever, whatever decisions that you made where you might regret them right now, you made that decision with all of the information you had at the time, mm-hmm. including your internal information. Emotion and thought is just data in the end of the day, at the end of the day. It's data from your body to your body. And you use that to make decisions as well. Do you keep records or do you journal? I do. I do. Do you go back and review those journals and like go back to what you were thinking and feeling at the time? Cause our, our, our memory is poor. I mean, mm-hmm. we, if a decision turned out a certain way, we're going to re we're going to frame it in our mind a specific way. And we like to remember things in a way that we, that are positive. <laughs> yes. Or, well, see, I think that, uh, that there is one of the great, it's the great tricks of the human mind. When you just said there, we like to re- remember things positive, right? That's you saying that. And you yeah. that is you. I, from what I know of you, that's that's your disposition. But there are other individuals who don't have that tendency and they, in fact, go the other way. They like to remember, I screwed up. I missed my shot. She was the one, like whatever it might be, that they review themselves negatively by default. And so what I try and encourage myself to do, and I, if I'm ever working with someone who where journaling seems like an appropriate intervention, it is, firstly, it is not for everyone. And secondly, it also should probably be tailored to what you're trying to actually focus on. Most of my work is on neutralizing the way you view. So if you are overly positive, let's just balance that a little bit or vice versa. And and firstly, checking in with probably to that simple model before of what do you need to accept right now? What What is your attention stuck on? What, what, what's front of mind? Is there anything in there that you need to just be like, all right, here's what it is. And then regardless of whether it's positive, negative, in the middle, what are you going to accept as a reality that you have to then be, commit to an action on? And so most of my daily work, daily journal will be just literally vomit, like before coffee kicks in, before I really get running, just what's on my mind? What happened yesterday? Where? What am I thinking about in my spare time? And then okay, well, what am I going to do about that? If that's something that keeps coming up and I write about it every three days, like I've probably got to dig in. But otherwise, yeah, coach said something and and so what? We're all upset. Move on. And so it becomes a daily just 
check in, what are you going to do? Check in, what are you going to do? The, re- the long-term review doesn't happen as much. Mm. Man, this is so good. This is good for me. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time because like you're saying things and I'm going back in my head and, and, you know, I get, I feel, you know, I'll be honest, like personally, sometimes my brother's an excellent journaler and he's a filmmaker and he journals a lot. And sometimes then I have other friends that journal a ton. And I'm like, I just haven't gotten into that. And it's good to know, like I had to cut myself some slack. It's not for everybody. No, not at all. Not at all. And in, and in fact, there's, there's, you know, think about how do you communicate best when you, it, this is like anyone who's listening, but for you, Eric, like maybe you're not a writer. Maybe that is not your preferred channel. Maybe you're a talker. Maybe you're someone who likes to ingest and reflect internally and then you you act, whatever it might be. Like it's finding your own channel of expression and whatever fits. The more important part about it is what are you actually paying attention to when you do that? Sometimes meditation is as effective, if not better, than journaling for these exact processes. Mm-hmm. Like what do, you, what do you discover is on your mind when you meditate? What do you discover is important versus that's just noise today and tomorrow? And then what do you set your intention for the day, for the week, for the project, whatever it might be? You can do that by not writing a word, but by sitting quietly for 10 minutes. And so it's much more, I I'm encourage people much more, find what fits you. Don't copy other people just because they tell you it's good or just because someone gave you a shiny leather-bound journal for Christmas. Like choose what fits you and find, you know, explore it. Try yeah. something. If it doesn't stick, don't do it. It's a mark of a great coach. Um, one size does not fit all. You made a comment before that the game doesn't care how you feel. I was talking about sports. That, I mean, that's so true. You know, you show up, you know, do your job. You know what I'm saying? Like it, we've all heard that the Bill Belichick thing, but it really doesn't like you still have to go out and perform. How does that translate like to somebody outside of sport? Like when I come, when you come home from work, I hate to say this, your kids don't really care how you feel, <laughs> right? They're expecting a parent. Um, when you show up to work, like how can, what can we draw from that? Like the everyday folk that's not, you know, like myself, that's not on the mound, you know, and win or lose, I'm still getting a big paycheck in my, uh, in my locker. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you, I can't use the example. I don't have kids, but that's a great example. Like your kids aren't, I can't remember ever until maybe of my later teen years worrying about like, how does mum feel right now? I'm just hungry. And I, I just got home from school. What's in the cupboard? What's a, yeah. What do we got for dinner, right? And uh, and so, yeah, the, the kids are not really that concerned with how you feel, nor is your boss often, unless you're in a really, really lucky situation, and nor is the police officer who pulled you over. There are, there are many elements of life that your emotions don't really matter because you're there to act or you're there to pay attention to certain things. If you were going in for open-heart surgery, and the surgeon walked in and was more concerned with how you feel than the approach he was going to take to cutting your chest open. Would that concern you a little bit? Yeah. It's nice to know that they care. In reality, I don't give a shit that the <laughs> surgeon is concerned with my feelings. I just need to know he can cut properly and he right. isn't going to screw that bit up. Right. And so when it comes to action-oriented things, which parenting is very much at times, 
Mm-hmm. Um, there are elements where care is required, absolutely, and they're going to really want to connect with you on that level. But oftentimes, it's it's not going to matter like that. And so the, the quicker we can adjust and, and take those glasses and put them on our own life, mm-hmm. usually the better we can get on with, okay, well, what's important for me right now? What, what can I focus on and what can I do that will move me more towards what I want out of this situation, which is connection with my kids? Instead of wanting them to care about my feelings, what can I do and pay attention to that can help us get more connected? Same at work, same wherever. I love this. What, is, what does high performance mean to you? It's an interesting... Uh, I, I, was in a, I was in a group discussion the other day, an organized like, kind of industry thing. And I had to bite my tongue for so much of it because as, <clears throat> so as an athlete, we had high, high, in Australia, high performance is one of the things we're renowned for, sports science and all that stuff, because we kind of had to. Like in order to compete with America at the Olympics, we're not, we've got 30 million people and we have to compete with a country of 300 million and some amazing athletes as outliers there. So we had to dot all our I's and cross all our T's. And so it was a thing, right? And I never really questioned it as a as a concept until I was part of a high performance team that went into uh, a professional sports organization, and it was kind of like this vanguard where the the new administration told the old school people like, "Here's what we're going to do. This is what this is going to be our point of difference. This is going to make us better." Without really thinking about like, are we trying to tell the coaches that they're not high performance? The people who've been here for thirty years already. And the athletic trainers who've served these athletes relatively well, you know, on par with league average in terms of injuries and all that sort of stuff for the last 25 years, like, are they not high performance? They're just performance and we have to come in and as the external experts and tell them, hey, here's how you can be better. Like, that was a real eye-opener for me because the trainer actually said that to me, like, what does this actually mean, high performance? What have we been doing? And low performance. Yeah. And I think that was his exact words. And I was like, Oh wow. I never thought of it like that. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of demeaning to the people who are already doing it. And, and in reality, it's a bit in the psychological field. They have a thing called positive psychology, but in reality, it's just psychology focused on like the positive end of the scale. Like it's really still just working on psychology. And so high performance as an industry, it's definitely like a buzzword and there is definitely value in focusing on what can improve our performance. But if you're a good, if you're a good coach or a good trainer or a good strength coach, whatever it might be, a good GM, you're probably doing that already. And just by calling it out and being explicit about it doesn't make it, you know, it doesn't make a world of difference unless everyone's bought in and and working on, you know, paying attention to, I hate to use that term again, but what is your attention on? Is your attention on proving people that you're smart and that you know high performance and they don't? Or is your attention on learning and discovering what performance means in this context and trying to help the performers be a little bit better each day? I'm glad you took it that way. Um, I've made that mistake. And from an organizational standpoint, um, and I think the, the word needs to get, the phrase needs to get recaptured. Um, and it means different things. Like now, if you go online, these people are high performance coaches, like, and they're, I I don't even know what it means sometimes. (laughs) Um, and it's like, it needs to, it's almost like there needs to be a new term and I don't know what that is yet. Well, I've shrunk mine 
from being I've had all sorts of labels when I was just a normal football coach, mm-hmm. uh, and I used the air quotes there for people who can't see video. Um, to then it was a mental performance coach and it was a high performance coach depending on where I was and what role I was filling. But now whenever anyone asks me what I do, it's either I'm just a coach if I don't want to have too much of a discussion about it or if I'm in a, a room of industry people, I'll say I'm a performance coach because in reality, if I think back to my days as a performer, as an athlete, like if you're a good coach, you're probably not just focusing on one part of what we do. And if we're, and this idea of being a mental coach is like, wait, so you you can coach the just his head and his heart <laughs> isn't involved and his body doesn't have to move in line with what he does? Yeah. Or if you're just a strength coach, like that's all you're doing? Like, you know, you know as well as I do, Eric, like good strength coaches are some of the best holistic coaches in the world. They capture a guy's heart. They get him invested in movement patterns. It's not about just being strong. So the more I think we can remove the minutiae of people trying to differentiate themselves or of people trying to, like, prove themselves as experts, I think the better. Last last thing, what are you learning about right now to challenge yourself? Are there any books you're reading? Like, what what are you doing to take – it can be personal. It doesn't matter. It could be something – you're gardening. I don't care. Like, what is it? it's funny you asked that off the back of that previous question. This is not pre. This is not preordained either. But um, I've just ordered two books from um, from Bruce Lee, and uh, they are about his the martial art that he developed. And the reason I say it follows on nicely from the previous question is because he removes a lot of the dogma and a lot of the very specific nuances that people try and use to differentiate is the difference between taekwondo and karate and all these sorts of things and he developed his own way which is ironic but he he declared it as my way is no way my system is no system what you need to be able to do is in that moment what you need to be able to do and so it's less about you have to take this stance and you have to use this function whatever it's more about knowing generally the principles of if this, I think, sorry, the name, if anyone's interested, the name of the martial art is Jeet Kune Do. Um, the book is called The Way of Jeet Kune Do, I think, but in literal translation, it means the way of the intercepting fist. And because of that as the concept, it's really, if there's a fist coming at you, you don't, you don't get to decide whether it's coming high or low, fast or fast or slow, uh, from someone who's good or not. Like it's just there's a fist coming. And with that fist, what are you going to do? Rather than in karate where there's a set of rules and regulations, like he applies it as a philosophy to everything. And so I've been struck by that uh, in parallel with those discussions about why we get so hung up on really semantics. It's it's rife in psychology. There's a lot of like Oh, should we should use this word instead of that word. Like the performer doesn't give a shit. And the coach doesn't give a shit. Just tell us if you can help or not. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm currently trying to learn as much as I can about how to remove inherent systems where they where they complicate things that shouldn't be that complicated. I love it. I am definitely going to be begging you to come back. I have like 50 questions. I didn't get no, literally like I'm, I have a ton of questions. I didn't even get to my mind is running. Um, 
I love people like you because you're, you're taking a pause and you're causing other people to take a pause and to think. And I appreciate what you've brought to the table today. I'm definitely going to be thinking myself a little bit more in a positive way. Uh, but thank you so much for your time and what you brought to the Blueprint Podcast today. How can people find you? How can they support you? You know. Uh, yeah, well, I uh, well, firstly, been great being here, man. Always love rapping with you. And uh, as you can probably hear when I go off on tangents or get deep on a subject, I love talking about it anyway. So been my pleasure. Um, if people do want to hear me talk anymore, they're not sick of my voice, they'll be able to find the Toughness Podcast on all podcast channels. Uh, and if you want to find me on social media, then Instagram is probably where I'm most active, which is Paddy's Graham, P-A-D-D-Y-S Graham. And on Twitter, PJ Steinfeld, which is my old handle, which shows how little I use it. But there is the occasional update on there from a more technical or research or, you know, nuanced perspective. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, man. Cheers, Eric. Cheers. Cheers.